At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. It's Friday, September 12th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Rebecca Watson, guest hosting for Indre Viscontas, who is out this week. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome on. Hi. Thanks. Good to be here, Chris. I'm no Indre, but... Well, we have to test you. Let's hear that next line. Okay. All right. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. Not bad. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiring minds, on Twitter at inquiring show, and on Facebook at slash inquiring minds podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. Today's episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing you the world's greatest professors right to your fingertips. For a limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of its courses. That course is Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. It's great. We've talked about it on the show before. You should totally check it out. So to find out more, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiring minds. So here we are in mid-September, and there is a very important election coming up in the U.S. to determine control of both houses of Congress. In less than two months, November 4th, we have this election. So across the country, Senate and House races are unfolding. There's big ad buys. There's debates coming, big debates between candidates. And across the country, there are these journalists called fact-checkers, and they are trying to keep the candidates honest. They're basically adherents to this old Jeffersonian theory that, you know, to have an electorate that does, that elects the right politicians, they have to actually know what's true. But there's a problem here. Does fact-checking actually work? Do people's minds ever change when you show them that their their candidate just totally lied? Did Sarah Palin's fans stop supporting her after every single fact checker showed that her claim about death panels was totally baseless uh, or not? To discuss whether we can hold candidates honest effectively, I invited on the show Brendan Nyhan, an old colleague who's now a professor of political science at Dartmouth, and he actually studies fact checking on a psychological level. He asks in his research, can you correct falsehoods? Can you deter politicians from lying, raising the reputational cost so much that they're just afraid to do it? And here's a little clip from our interview. My research on this uh, with my co-author Jason Reifler suggests we should be pretty cautious about how high our hopes are for changing people's minds. Once those those, uh, myths are out there, people have connected with them. They resonate with strongly held identities such as partisan or ideological or in some cases religious, it's very hard to change people's minds. So when you give people corrective information, we'd like them to be less likely to believe in the myth that we're trying to debunk. In some cases, though, we find that the people who are most predisposed to believe in that claim, either the correction has no effect or can actually make them double down on that belief and come to believe in it more. So what do you make of that, Rebecca? Well, it's really depressing. Yeah. You chose a, a very depressing. I'm really <laughs> good at that, actually. Yeah. So, you know, when he's talking about doubling down on a belief that you are trying to debunk, that's something that I know you've talked about before, Chris, right? Mm-hmm, uh, totally. Is there a word for that? Uh, being dumb? No, it's it's actually, <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I think it's being human, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know. I'm just getting getting this scene doubling down in Vegas in my head, you know. <laughs> but uh, what is the word for that? Um, it's called the backfire effect sometimes. Mm. So not, but there are a lot of different words that are used. Boomerang effect, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully, I mean, the whole interview isn't like that, right? Does he give us some <laughs> sort of hope? Well, you have to listen, but but yes, there's there's okay. there's some ways in which facts work, but not the obvious uh, hit you over the head and change your mind kind of way. Right. Unfortunate. Mm-hmm. So, well, we'll hear we'll hear more of that. That's going to be our interview for today. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. So there's something I really wanted uh, to bring up. There's this fascinating study. It is just out in Science Magazine. Uh, one of the authors is Linda Skitka, and she's a psychologist at the University of Illinois, Chicago, whose work I've known for a long time. And it's a study about morality, the science of morality, which is a field that is doing some amazing things. But they've done something that I've not seen before. They've got a sample of 1,252 adults. They actually you know, solicited these people as participants, and they studied them using their smartphones. So these people agreed to be pinged on their smartphones with questions, and they received these text messages five times a day for three days. And... The questions that they were asked were, you know, in the last hour, have you experienced something moral or immoral? In other words, did you witness someone do something good or bad? Did you do something good or bad yourself? Were you the target of somebody doing something good or bad? Uh, Did you learn, like hear about gossip? Did you hear gossip about something good or bad? If the answer was yes, then they had to describe it. They also, of course, had given their religious views, their political views, and that allowed the researcher to do all kinds of jujitsu with the data. And so there's fascinating stuff that comes out. Here's one headline finding that I think is the most, the most telling. Religious and non-religious participants did not show any difference in their frequency of reporting positive moral experiences. Or as the authors put it, we did not find evidence for religious people committing moral acts more frequently than non-religious people did. Neither did they find evidence for them committing more immoral acts uh, on one side or the other. But they did find one difference. They found that religious people had more intense emotions of guilt, embarrassment, and disgust when they committed immoral acts, and more pride and gratefulness when they committed moral acts. So... Wow, well, there goes all of religion (laughs) down the toilet. Congratulations. Well, I don't know, but it's certainly, there goes the argument that religion has a special claim on morality, not not if you measure it this way. Now, they could say that their morality is somehow more objective, but but if you measure it subjectively, this is a totally subjective study. What people think is moral. Yeah, and yeah. What I really, I really like the study in part because often when we talk about morality in research, it's using these kind of uh, hypothetical situations, like you know the the train scenario where somebody's about to get hit, and do you do you redirect the train? Right. You know, that whole deal. And I, I'm always very skeptical of those because what somebody says in, you know, a, a, an office setting when they're just answering a question like that is going to be very different, maybe, from what they would actually do in that scenario. But which of course, no one's ever, almost no one probably has ever been in, right? So right. Some people and, have been in analogous ones, which which suck to ever have to experience. But that that's the point. It's not a real life experience to be in the yeah. situation. Yeah. And and these days, our uh, standards for uh, what we subject psychological <laughs> subjects to, right. you know, right. uh, yeah. it's a bit too strict mm-hmm. to actually make them kill people. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so, yeah, I like how this use, uses real life experiences uh, to determine that. Um, I also, I think it's very interesting that uh, religious people reported more uh, guilt, embarrassment, disgust for immoral deeds, more pride and gratefulness for moral deeds. Uh, My first thought was, oh, well, maybe religion is working then. Maybe that's a sign that it's working. But then I realized, well, wait, if experiencing that guilt and embarrassment and disgust isn't actually leading you to do less uh, immoral deeds, then there's really no use to it. Yeah, no, I mean it's it, it it's looking it's looking good for the the Sam Harrises and the people who <laughs> who say that uh, that morality doesn't need to be religious. In fact, there's a more objective. And and this is not objective, right? This is subjective, but you know, it's it's it it does make it hard to make that case that religion has some sort of special dispensation. Uh, there's something else uh, interesting in the study that I will bring up here, which is that they also found that in terms of one of the categories was did you hear 
about something moral, they found that the immoral acts were heard about twice as much as the moral acts. So in other words, this reinforces the idea that gossip is how we tattle on people who do bad things. And that's how, as a society, we kind of decide who we're going to ostracize. And so I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, there's a lot of research out there about reputation management, right? And how gossip plays into that. And so, yeah, this seems to support that very much so. So that was so cool study. Um, And what have you got that you want to tell us about? (laughs) I have a bit of a depressing one, Chris. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Uh sorry in advance. But uh, it it is a very interesting uh, bit of psychological research that has been done over at London Business School. Researchers there found that in some jobs and with some uh, interviewers, women who are applying for jobs may find that their past achievements work against them in that the interviewers will be more critical of them the more achievements these women have on their resume, which is incredibly depressing, uh, speaking as a woman and as someone... For women who work hard and try to achieve things. Yeah. To have it thrown back in their faces. Exactly. Yeah, kind of Especially because... Kind of unfair. A little bit. Yeah. You know, there are these... Um, there are a number of industries that are male-dominated. And for women who are trying to break into those industries, they may think that they can overcome uh, the inherent bias against women by working harder, by achieving more. And of course, if you do achieve more, you're going to put that on your resume, you're going to bring that up in in your interview. But what this study found was that for some men who were evaluating these uh, women who were interviewing for hypothetical jobs, they actually were more critical of the women, the more these women demonstrated uh, a high degree of efficiency, which yeah, is is a bit, a bit depressing. So the researchers had men pretend to be supervisors who were interviewing for a position. And they had a look at uh, these women who were applying. And what they found was that for men who were uh, who who scored higher on tests that were uh, meant to judge their positions on uh, gender hierarchy, basically men who were interested in maintaining the hierarchy of men being on top and when women being subservient, conservative. Men. Okay, yeah, we could say <laughs> conservative men. Yes, you can. Uh, it's yeah, although yeah. you know, I do want to be sure to say that there are men who identify as liberal but also have these types of biases uh, against women, uh, sometimes unknowingly. Uh, oh yeah, but yes, yeah, yeah, yeah m- the more conservative men. Um, these men uh, were more likely to uh, judge women more harshly for having these achievements compared to men having the exact same achievements. And the researchers suspect that this is something to do with, uh, well, first and foremost, maintaining that hierarchy of, you know, men on top, women subservient, and also a, a feeling of being threatened by uh, a class that they believe should be under them. So if they identify a woman who appears to be able to one day take over their own position, uh, that could be very threatening to these men. And uh, they react accordingly and punish the women by not hiring them, basically. This is a really, really bad news story. I I said conservatives because... I mean, there's this psychological profile that goes with political conservatism called being a hierarch. And being a hierarch means that you are okay with various types of inequality. You think that it's somehow the way the world is supposed to be. And that could be a class-based inequality. It could be a race-based inequality. And it could be a gender-based inequality. And sometimes it's all of them. So it sounds to me like we are talking about hierarchs. Now, I think there's there's actually you know subconscious gender bias that pervades um, all kinds of people and actually might even show up subconsciously in some women. Uh, but uh, then there's but a lot of people try not to act on it, and they can control it to a, a, an extent. Although you know some some sub- subconscious things you can't control. But this sounds like the double whammy of of, of the real the really biased people. Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth it is always worth noting that it's not just men that fall into this kind of thinking. That this sort of hierarchy is something that 
everyone in our society, Western society, whatever you want to call it, uh, grow up with this idea, this hierarchy in place. And so it is that, yeah, a lot of women have internalized this as well. And there have been plenty of studies on that as well, which I won't go into here, but studies on how women react to other women in their industry, particularly in male-dominated industries. Um, and I particularly have some friends in uh, various STEM fields that report some really interesting experiences. Uh, some of them have had experiences with women who treat them very poorly, in part because those women were treated poorly and feel like this is something you have to go through in order to uh, advance in the industry. Uh, others have women who are very helpful because they felt that they needed that, you know, when they were at that position in the industry. So yeah, there there are a number of different ways that women can react to these sort of Male dominated industries. But, uh, yeah, this, this study in particular. It's a depressing study. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of it is unfortunately a bit depressing. But the, I mean, the, the positive takeaway, I suppose, is that not all people reacted this way. It really was just, uh, those who already had these traditional views on gender. Uh, you know, the, the people who already assumed that men were more dominant, that women were more subservient. So really, the more we work to subvert those stereotypes and and debunk those tropes, maybe the more we can uh, stop this kind of uh, discrimination from happening in the workplace. Yeah, you know, we've talked uh, a, lo a lot on the show in the past about, well, we did a whole show about the psychology of race. Uh, and you know, there are these tests that you actually, I believe that all these uh, male managers should just be forced to take them. And they show in ways that you can't even control all of your gender biases because you're just pushing buttons real fast, <laughs> right. right? And you turn it turns out you're associating women with the home and men with work, yeah. right? Or something like that in a way that you cannot even control. And then the test comes back These and these guys would read, you show a strong preference right. for, you know... Men over women. I mean, I don't think you wonder if these people even know that they're doing that. I think they should make they should put them through these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things that I like talking about because it's something that a lot of people don't realize that they have these implicit biases that once you realize they're there. And I've I've found this personally with myself, you know, in terms of things like uh, race and with ableism and class. Uh, once you realize you have certain biases, you can start to take the steps to make up for them and to uh, hopefully balance those biases out. Uh, it's it it's difficult, especially when you're talking culture wide. When we have a whole culture that has a, a sort of bias against women, for instance, but it is possible, you know. And there are studies that definitely show ways that you can counteract. Uh, things like stereotype threat and other uh, psychological biases. So it's not all bad news. So with that, uh, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Brendan Nyhan. Today's episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors right to your fingertips with over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. For limited time only, The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of these courses, Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. It's basically a great introduction to the science of why humans are so wacky and the amount of things that we've actually been able to figure out about that wackiness. So it's it's really good stuff. I've been enjoying listening to it. Uh, so go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Brendan Nyhan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me, Chris. Excellent to have you. So you study fact-checking whether it actually works. And you've also written extensively about this at Columbia Journalism Review. 
And I got to think this is a relatively new field because the phenomenon of media fact-checking is itself new, so studying it has to be even even newer, right? So maybe you could start out by sketching the history and why people got so into fact-checking and why you got on the case. Yeah, it's an interesting story. So the, 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 the forerunner to the fact-checking movement are the ad watches that became big during the 1990s. So specifically focusing on television ads and airing analyses of whether they were accurate or inaccurate on television news shows. Uh, in the 2000s, I started a website called Spinsanity. It was a nonpartisan fact-checking website. Uh, that was outside of the world of journalism, but we came to be part of that world. Uh, and later, journalists started uh, their own fact-checking website. So uh, Brooks Jackson collaborated with Kathleen Hall Jameson to start factcheck.org. Uh, and then in the late 2000s, PolitiFact uh, was the most significant entry into the fact-checking world. Um, and just to set the, the landscape for people, the, the, the third major fact-checker besides factcheck.org and PolitiFact is the Washington Post fact-checker, uh, which came into existence around this period, went out of existence, and now is back in existence with Glenn Kessler as their, as their primary critic. Got it. Uh, and so then you started studying to determine whether it actually works. So you went from being a practitioner to a, an analyst, researcher. That's right. That's right. So I went, into, I went into graduate school and came back to this topic of misinformation. Why do people believe things that aren't well supported by the facts? And what can we do to persuade them? Is, or, you know, how can we understand why people believe these things despite receiving, in a lot of cases, information to the contrary? And that turns out to be a very hard problem. So let's, let's start simple. Uh, I, I guess you and I would certainly agree, I mean, you did this. There are facts. Uh, there are things that are verifiable. And a fact checker can actually separate truth from, truth from falsehood. I mean, we, you, you think journalists can do this, right? They have the ability. I, I do, if they exercise careful judgment. And I, I think generally they, they have. The fact checkers, when they rate the same content, uh, come to the same conclusion a very high percentage of the time. So that's a good indication that they're uh, seeing the evidence and interpreting it in a consistent way. Uh, they're not always right. And, it, you know, there are high profile examples where they might have made what I would consider to be a misjudgment. In a lot of cases, it's less about getting the facts wrong, though. They're very careful about that. It's more likely that they've chosen a subject where what is itself true or false is less clear. So there's lots of subjectivity in, in politics. There's lots of opinion. If you choose a wrong topic, it's easy to get into a world where you can't really fact check, uh, for instance, um, what it means to end Medicare because it all depends on how you interpret the word end. And there's also, in some cases, sometimes the lack of context is cited as an inaccuracy and that kind of is iffy. Because sometimes if you give absolutely no context for a claim, then you can make something seem like a completely different thing than what it actually means. On the other hand, the amount of context that you give is a matter of, of judgment, and it's not clear how much is too little in a lot of cases. Right. The fact checkers often object if you don't include context that would make your side look bad, which is just part of political speech. We put our own side in the best possible light. That's normal political speech. So I think it's important to distinguish the cases where people are really misleading listeners by what they exclude from the cases where they're just doing what politicians always do, which is putting their position in the best possible light. Let me give you an example. Um, and again, I don't want to pick on the fact checkers. I think the work they do is generally good. But there are cases where it goes off the rails. And one is this uh, associated press fact check after – uh, Bill Clinton's speech at the Democratic National Convention, which basically presented as context uh, the fact that Clinton had lied about Monica Lewinsky. So he was citing fact checkers as evidence for his side, but he had failed to point out that he himself had lied about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Hypocrite. Right? Which has nothing to do with what he was talking about, but somehow yeah. seemed relevant at the time. So you, you have to be careful. So let's let, actually, let's get into some more specifics and uh, let's uh, talk about some clear cut examples of factual errors, and I've thought of ones that I think you will know about because you've written about them enough. Obama was not born in the United States or the Affordable Care Act will create death panels. <laughs> so I, that's about as clear as it gets, right? And, and all the fact checkers have done those kinds of things. 
That's right. That's right. I mean, we can, I, I could give you the 10 minute version of people's uh, attempts to parse death panels into uh, an accurate claim. But I think, I think a reasonable judgment about what a listener would think that term means and what actually is done under the Affordable Care Act would lead you to conclude that it is absolutely false. Um, and the, of course, the Obama uh, not being born in this country claim has been definitively uh, debunked. And, 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 you know, and yet still is, is echoing around. I want to talk more about why these claims don't go away when they're debunked. But first, let's stay on the media side. What is your view of what a journalist or fact checker should do in such a case? I mean, you think they should state the fact as a fact. And if the politician is saying this wrong fact and repeating it, they should say that the politician's making a false claim. In other words, there should be no attempt to credit it as just an opinion. That's right. I, I'd like to see more direct accountability for the accuracy of the statements that politicians make. When you ask journalists what their job is, many of them will say to keep politicians honest and watch out for them when they're when they're making statements that aren't accurate. But in practice, they often shy away from that, particularly when it comes to these sorts of controversial subjects. So what you'll see are uh, he said, she said style articles where a claim is made and then a counterpoint is offered. At best, it says uh, someone else says this isn't true, but there's no effort to definitively arbitrate what's true and false. And that's that's what I think we should see more of. So what about a scientific fact? I mean, this is a science show. And in effect, you're doing science on fact checking. How do you, how do you think those should be handled? And how do, how do the fact checkers handle them? Because on these kinds of things, as a journalist, you can't go out and talk to nature and say, uh, hey, nature, spill your secrets. What's the truth about you? you know, instead, you have to talk to an expert and ask the expert what's the truth about nature. So it's not exactly the same as a fact because it's actually an opinion from someone who's supposed to be reliable. So how should that be handled? It's a tricky question. As you know, and as I think your listeners know, there's inherent uncertainty in the scientific process. As you said, you can't ask nature what the truth is. But what we can do is say, what are some conclusions that we have a high degree of certainty about that are consistent with the best available evidence and where there's a consensus among experts? Okay, Climate change would be an example. Another would be the tax cuts uh, decrease revenues. They don't uh, reduce the deficit, as some have claimed. Right, That's a consensus among economists who've done the technical research on the effects of, of tax cuts. So the, the challenge then as a reporter is to distinguish those cases from the ones where there genuinely is dispute among experts and the competing claims aren't clear. In those cases, you want to appropriately reflect the uncertainty in the scientific community. But at some point, we just have to stop. Right. No one. Let me give an example that, you know, no one gives uh, the other side of uh, the argument uh, and says that the sun revolves around the earth. Right. That is no longer a claim that has to be balanced in the scientific community. Although, you know, if you if you took our journalists back to, you know, the 14 or 1500s, maybe there are people who would have reported the controversy that way. Right. Because at the time, you know, that was a matter of dispute. But we draw we draw the line and say, now we know this. Right. Um, we have a lot of evidence that's consistent with this claim, and uh, we're going to move on and not present it as a matter of opinion or dispute what the what the science says. Now, we always can revise that science later, but we have to uh, inform our readers, or we should inform our readers now about what the the best science says. So, do fa- fact checkers generally then they don't mess up climate change, right? They, in other words, they they say the scientific consensus supports global warming. This person who said it's a hoax, they, their pants are on fire. I mean, they're 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 they've always been good on those kind of things too. Would that be fair to say? I think so. Their part of their method is to go talk to experts. One of the re- the challenges in, in, in mainstream deadline reporting is you don't have time uh, to get uh, to the bottom of some scientific dispute, but the fact checkers work on a different timeline and they do, I think, a better job of getting to those experts and finding out where the consensus is. So you've done a lot of research on why um, this doesn't always work. I mean, we've established that there are facts, there's ways of discerning them, a journalist without a PhD can even do it, and yet misinformation happens. Uh, not only happens, but persists. So first, why does it happen? Uh, what, what generates it? Well, th- there's a chicken-egg problem. Uh, so, so let me give both sides. Uh, on the one hand, we have uh, individuals who want to believe things 
uh, about the world, right? So we all want to believe we're right about the world. And to the extent that we have a worldview, which of course all of us do, uh, there are certain facts that would make us feel better about how we think the world works. And uh, there are politicians out there who would like to provide you with factual claims um, that are supportive of their worldview or their agenda, right? And the intersection of those is where a lot of the most important political misinformation comes from. There are elites who are pushing misleading claims, often without appropriate pushback from the media, as we've talked about. And there are people who like to believe those things. Now, some of these uh, you know, myths that are out there really do bubble up uh, from the bottom. I think 9-11 conspiracy theories are a good example of that. But in a lot of cases, the misinformation is uh, caused by people hearing things that they'd like to believe to be true and accepting them, right? So, and the psychological reason for this is we're much less skeptical of information that confirms our pre-existing views uh, than information that contradicts them. Let's go even a step further back because I've always find this interesting. Who creates the lies? It's someone who, I mean, I'm just guessing here. It's someone who has a little bit of knowledge. They research an issue. They also have a bias. And they think they've found something new or, or some kind of expose that they're going to ex- show the world, but they haven't really looked at the other side or they've misunderstood. I mean, how does it actually start? That's a good question. It, this is a really hard one to answer because in a lot of cases, we don't observe it. So we don't know exactly where the 9-11 conspiracy theories start. We, they only become visible at a certain point as they kind of move through the the media and the and the and the social media world. I think um and, and and then in some cases where we do know where they come from, we don't know the sincerity of the people who are making the claims, right? We don't know the extent to which Sarah Palin genuinely believed there was a death panel death panel in the Affordable Care Act, or uh whether that was made that claim was made cynically. Um so ultimately I think it's 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 hard to know where these things come from because uh you can imagine there's a, there's a vast set of possible false things that people could say, and the ones that regular people hear about are only that tiny sliver that really resonate with people, right? That are interesting and controversial and, and, and make some kind of a claim that pushes people's buttons in just the right way. And when you get one of those, that's when you get an explosion, uh, like uh, Obama not being born in this country or 9-11 was an inside job. Um, there are lots of other false claims that are made every day that don't go anywhere, right? So if you actually look at the fact-checking websites, that's mostly what it is, right? Claims that were made once and never repeated again. It seems like there's also, I'm just interested in this, it seems like there's also a difference between a political falsehood like a claim about death panels and just a conspiracy theory, because it seems like conspiracy theories get generated immediately after events um, by people who are conspiratorial. So, you know, President Obama basically sends in um, a team to take out Osama bin Laden, and as soon as the news breaks, people say he's not really dead. I mean, that's just conspiracy theory. It's not the same as cooking up some sort of policy misinformation that's going to advance your your campaign or something. That's right. That's right. A lot of the most prominent conspiracy theories concern events, right? So it's scary for us to think the world is as random and chaotic as it actually turns out to be, and when you see an event that reminds you of that, you want to think of some explanation that's, that uh, makes it more palatable to live in the scary world that we actually live in, right? So these uh, conspiracy theories start spreading immediately. And again, we can see that more visibly now because of social media, but obviously that was happening even before social media. It just couldn't be tracked as easily. So then here's the tension. Given the emotional investment in certain falsehoods that people have, it's hard to know whether fact-checking on a partisan or emotional issue changes minds very well. So, so does it uh, to a limited extent or what? So it, it can, it can. But my research on this uh, with my co-author Jason Reifler suggests we should be pretty cautious about how high our hopes are for changing people's minds. Once those, those uh, myths are out there, people have connected with them, they resonate with strongly held identities, such as partisan or ideological, or in some cases, religious, it's very hard to change people's minds. So when you give people corrective information, we'd like them to be less likely to believe in the myth that we're trying to debunk. In some cases, though, we find that the people who are most predisposed to believe in that claim 
either the correction has no effect or can actually make them double down on that belief and come to believe in it more, which is something the we call the backfire effect. effect. Yeah. Yes. And, um, and, and that's a terrifying uh, notion, or at least it should be to anyone in journalism or education or health or all these fields where we think the problem uh, when we encounter false beliefs is to give people the right information. So nonetheless, I, I, I gather you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't think fact-checking was valuable. So what's, you know, square the circle. If people are significantly unpersuadable, yet you still want a world in which fact-checking exists, why? <laughs> well, let, me, let, me say, let me say two things. The first one is I think corrections can be more effective. We shouldn't overstate how likely they are to roll back myths that are out there. That's really difficult. Even the most compelling evidence, um, like a case like Iraq not having weapons of mass destruction before the U.S. invasion, may not be enough to, to fully roll back a myth that's out there. But there are ways to make it more effective, and that's something that I'm do actively working on in my research. Um, the second point, though, is I think fact-checking is important because it holds politicians accountable in the first place. They're so often the vehicle for these myths. If they know they'll be called out publicly, they may not reinforce or disseminate these myths in the first place. And that can make a really big difference in whether we get into these situations where some uh, widespread belief turns out to be false. And so then you would need to have evidence showing that politicians are actually deterred by fact checkers. That's right. That's right. And in, in fact, I have a study uh, with my co-author, Jason Reifer, that looks at exactly this idea. The purpose of the study was to find out, does scrutiny from fact checkers change how politicians behave? There are lots of reasons to think that we behave differently when people are watching us. And there are a lot of different studies across the social sciences that find that political and governmental elites in particular behave differently when people are, are keeping tabs on them. The idea of, of our study was to find out that applied to fact checkers. And, and what we did is we uh, did a large sample of state legislators in a number of states that had PolitiFact affiliates and a random sample from that group were sent letters saying, fact checkers are watching you and the political consequences of being caught lying could be really significant for you in your political career. And then what we did is we looked at how they were covered and we looked at how likely they were to have the accuracy of their claims questioned. And we found that um, the accuracy of their claims wasn't questioned very often, sadly. Um, this is still something that the, 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 the media under provide, but the folks we sent that letter to were less likely to have the accuracy of their claims question. So we think that's at least some evidence that politicians can be made to be more careful if they perceive a threat from fact checkers. So you didn't ask them any questions, you just sent them information and then you uh, compared them with people that didn't receive the information? So over time, is that is that right? That's right. That's right. We just we sent them a lot of letters. Okay. So uh, some of them became very sick of hearing from us in the mail as we sent them letter after letter reminding them just uh, what a significant threat fact checking could be to them. And, um, I, you know, I, I think a good way to think about this is that most fact checks don't have a big impact, but there's uh, a small but important chance that you could really be devastated by one that could have a very significant effect on you. And politicians are very risk averse. They want to avoid those sorts of situations. So if you make that threat more real, they're going to respond. And, and, and I think that is what we're seeing. What's the good case of one where a fact check really cost a politician a lot? Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, so let me give you a, an example from the current election. Um, and then I'll give you a, some evidence for how this is changing political behavior more generally. So in the current campaign, uh, Mark Begich is a, a Democrat running for re-election in Alaska. That's a uh, very red state. That's tough uh, terrain for Democrats under any circumstances. This is, a, this is an unfavorable electoral landscape for him. But he had been seen as doing pretty well until recently when he ran an ad uh, against his Republican opponent, um, that was immediately declared false by fact checkers. And he came under significant fire as a result of running that ad. He's had to pull it off the air. And it's seen as changing national political groups' perception of that race 
and how vulnerable Begich really is. And I, I read the story about this. The this is this is an allegation about his opponent where he's saying that the opponent was was not tough enough on um, criminals, certain kinds of criminals, particularly sex offenders. And then the ad goes on to suggest that one of those people was let out. This, this, the opponent was the attorney general. And one of these people was let out early and then committed a crime uh, and trying to pin that on his opponent. And it turns out that he, the causation, uh, it's not like this guy actually caused that to happen or maybe even it didn't have influence on these decisions. That's right. There was an administrative error in the sentencing that went into a plea agreement with this person. Uh, and the error took place before Begich's op- opponent, who was the attorney general at the time, ha- ha- was even in office. Uh, so it, it's, 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 and, and it concerns a sex offense. So it, it you know, it's, it's very inflammatory. It's, it's reminiscent without the racial aspect of the Willie Horton ad in the sense of taking a very high profile uh, crime that's uh, scary to people and trying to stick it on your opponent. So he's seeing significant uh, pushback. Now, will that change the outcome of that race in Alaska? We don't know yet. Um, but it will get people's attention, I think, in the in the political world to see um, fact-checking mattering. Um, let me give you one more one more piece of evidence, Chris, if that's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Um, so the, the you know, so it your listeners might remember in 2012, Mitt Romney's pollster said, we're not going to let our campaign be dictated by fact-checkers. And that there, there was a whole crisis of confidence in the media around that statement as people interpreted to mean that fact-checking wasn't working. I think that's too negative. I think you have to think about what politics might look like without those fact-checkers. And I think it would look worse. Um, and there's a, a nice recent example of this where uh, and there was an interview with a, a, a Republican consultant named uh, uh, Rick Wilson who said – um, there's less and less latitude for BS in ads these days. And, and there's more and more, how do you deliver a message that will move the numbers when you don't want to be in the weeds of PolitiFact crapping all over you for three days? So he's thinking about this and, and when he's thinking about what he can put in his ads, right? So if, if consultants are thinking about PolitiFact before they write their ads, that's a huge victory. Let's give another example, because this one's kind of science This is from the Arkansas Senate race, and I was digging around, and I, I've shown you this already, so you've, you've seen it. So Mark Pryor is a Democrat, and he accuses his opponent, uh, Tom Cotton, who's a Republican, of having, quote, voted against preparing Americans for pandemics like Ebola. And again, that's certainly pushing the scare button. So it turns out that Cotton, the Republican, uh, running, and, and Pryor's the incumbent, incumbent, Cotton voted against the House version of the 2013 Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Reauthorization Act. He voted against the House version, but voted for the final Senate version. So Pryor got dinged as a mostly false uh, claim, although you got to wonder why the guy voted against the House version. <laughs> so he has, a, he has an explanation for it, which has to do with perceived powers in that original House version for the president to dictate what emergency workers would do in the case of an, ep- an epidemic. And that was changed in the Senate version, and then he voted for it. Um, but uh, it's certainly an ad that's intended to scare people. There's no uh, evidence of a threat from Ebola in this country, but people are trying to use it to scare people. Um, and it's strikingly reminiscent of the John Kerry, I voted for it before I voted against it line. But I don't hear many Democrats leaping to his defense uh, as they did uh, to 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 carry, um, so uh, yeah, you know, I, I think again, it's being seen in Arkansas as an example of a politician uh, taking liberties with the truth that may have political consequences. Uh, you know, th- there's been a lot of people have identified the fact checkers, I think, wrongly as being favorable towards uh, Democrats, but in this case, it's two Democrats who are running misleading ads and getting called out. Right. Um, we, have, those we have picked two Democrat examples. I don't know yeah. if I did that on purpose, but we did pick. So actually, let's talk about that now. So there is some evidence in analyses of fact checkers work of Republicans getting worse scores. Uh, what does that mean? Well, so what it means is that uh, someone has tabulated all the ratings from the fact checking sites that use ratings. And come to some conclusion that they're more likely to be negative for uh, Republicans than Democrats. Okay. And, and there's a, a few people have done this, I think, including yourself. Yes, so I did one. <laughs> I, th- I, I think we can be pretty confident that that 
is a while ago. Is, I don't. Is I don't mathematically yeah. accurate. The question is the question that's important for people to think about is what that means, right? So I'm a social scientist, and so what I care about is getting a good estimate of the quantity of interest. Okay, and what I mean by that is how accurate the statements are that Republicans and Democrats make. So if you were a scientist and you were doing that, you would want a random sample of the of the, of the statements that Republicans make and a random sample of the statements that Democrats make. And then you'd evaluate the accuracy of those and you'd say, okay, whose are, are more accurate? Okay. That's not how the fact checkers do business. Okay. They're journalists. They say what's newsworthy. Okay. So we, we don't know how they pick the statements that they pick because that's the first thing. The second thing is even if they were picking a random sample and it didn't come out exactly 50 50, that's not proof of bias. Either So there, on the one hand, people use this to infer Republicans are more inaccurate or they try to use it to claim uh, that uh, the fact checkers are biased. And I think both conclusions are, are just not supportable given in the evidence we have. OK, so why would you expect the ratings to come out exactly 50-50 at all times? Right. That's going to vary depending on the political circumstances. And I think you're seeing that right now. The Democrats are in tough shape. They're struggling to keep the Senate. These Guys in red states are throwing the kitchen sink trying to keep their races, uh, you know, alive. So the Democrats, in the cases we've talked about, have been the ones pushing misleading ads, and the fact checkers have been happy to call them out on it. Okay, so um, you know, I, I hope people who've gotten into the, these kinds of uh, fights will, will will take a second look at, at the evidence in light of how it's playing out in this environment. But you agree that the fact checkers, when they check statements they tend to agree so in other words um there there wouldn't be any problem with generalizing about how they evaluate um the truth or falsehood of things you mean between the fact checkers i'm sorry yeah. I, don't, I don't understand well in other words at least you know you you pointed out some reasons why you can't necessarily perfectly compare in all respects um if republicans average a lower score than democrats in fact checks but at least you agree that um that the fact checks are accurately evaluating the statements yeah, you know, in, in general, I mean, I'm not a huge ratings fan. It, you know, the, the, the distinction between those categories can get shaky, um, but they do they do seem to be consistent. I, I think if you looked across the fact checker websites, you'd probably come to similar sorts of conclusions about the the balance uh, of the fact checks. Um, the other thing, just to say, just you know, by you know, by way of context, is the structure of the Republican Party is just different than the structure of the Democratic Party right now. The Republican Party right now is ideologically cohesive uh, in, in a way that the Democratic Party is not. Now, the, both parties have become much more polarized in Congress. But if you look at who supports those parties, who those politicians are playing to, the Republicans have a much more ideologically cohesive party than the Democrats do. And so there's a, there's a stronger incentive to be a bomb thrower. And those are the folks often who are baiting the fact checkers. Right? They could write about Michelle Bachman all day long. And there aren't that many Democratic analogs to Michelle Bachman right now. Um, but that may change. So you found, just to push this partisanship issue um, a little more, you found in one study that whether Republicans accepted a factual correction, if I'm getting this right, depended more on its source and which media outlet presented it than it did for whether Democrats accepted a correction. So they were behaving more uh, as if the source mattered. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? <laughs> well, so the, let me take a step back. The purpose of the study was to find out if, if you got corrective information from a source that you found to be credible, would that be more likely to change your mind than some source you thought might be biased against your right. point of view? Fox News for liberals, right? Of course. Right. Right, exactly, and 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 what we what we so and we did this for two different cases. We didn't find uh, differences in beliefs about uh, Mitt Romney and what he did while he was uh, CEO of Bain, uh, but we did find differences in beliefs that Obama raised taxes during his first term. And what we found was that when we asked Republicans whether that was true, and it's not, they were much more persuaded by almost any combination of an expert source, meaning a think tank and a news outlet, than the liberal-liberal combination of MSNBC citing 
the Liberal Center for American Progress. Okay, so that that was especially ineffective. Everything else was better than that. Okay, um, and that's really all we can say. So, uh, the, and, and we don't know that 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 study doesn't allow us to say whether the MSNBC uh, liberal think tank combination made things worse, or it was just neutral and the other ones made it better. But I think we can say with some confidence that it's important to cite credible sources that are persuasive to people. And um, saying uh, Obama isn't as bad as you think and uh, a a network that likes him and a think tank that like him say this is so is not going to be effective uh, and vice versa on the on the other side. But did the the Democrats were somehow okay with a Fox News and a conservative source telling them that, you know, they were wrong and Mitt Romney wasn't as bad as they thought he was? Well, I, I wouldn't say it was they were they were okay with it. We just found no difference. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, so maybe that that issue was so high profile at that point that the sources weren't moving people either way. Uh, I don't I don't know. I mean, that's cer- certainly something we should look into more. Um, so let's let's move on uh, to making the world even more factual. So you said there are, you've done research suggesting there are better and worse ways to make people listen to facts, and you know you've proposed ways to make fact checking even better. Um, so if you want a world with facts in it, uh, what do you, what do you need to do further? Uh, so we talked about one using credible sources. That's important. A second idea that we found support for in our research, uh, is to use graphical information in corrections when you can. So when you're presenting quantitative data, uh, as we often are, particularly on scientific or economic issues, presenting that information graphically instead of in textual form may be more effective. Uh, a third idea is to uh, use uh, causal explanations. Give people narratives to understand why things happen. Don't just say things aren't true. Help them understand why. So let me um, briefly cite something that I think you've written about, which is why haven't temperatures gone up as much in the last short time period as people thought, right? If you just say, well, that doesn't mean global warming isn't happening, that's not an especially convincing explanation. And Without getting into the whole uh, climate system uh, theory uh, that's going to get, I think, too complicated for people, there may be ways you can help them understand why that's happening in a way that's consistent with the theory of global warming, as I understand it. Yep. The heat went in the ocean. The heat went into the oceans, right? The heat is out there. It's just gone into the oceans. If you could – that sort of causal explanation, there's there's good psychological evidence suggests is – is more effective than just telling people what they think isn't true. And one one final uh, suggestion is to avoid using negations. And this is related to what we just talked about. Saying things aren't true is unlikely to be effective. It's better to state a claim in an accurate form. Okay, that helps people uh, process that information more effectively. Uh, So saying... uh, Chris is a handsome fellow is much better than saying uh, Chris is, an, is not an ugly guy. Right? <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, th- there's lots of reasons to think. So we're, we're not good at uh, turning that no off in our brain. We might hear it, but we don't process it. We tend to associate the person uh, with the thing that we're saying isn't true if we put them t- too closely together. So in other words, saying affirmations work is better than saying negations don't work. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so are we so does what is let's just last question, what does this experiment in fact checking mean? I mean, does it augur a better media world and a more sane political world, or is it you know, is it making a difference? Is it gonna get to the point where it really makes a difference? How do you feel about the whole endeavor? I'm really positive. I think it's made journalists think differently about the entire enterprise of political reporting, along with the, the, the penetration of political science into political journalism, which is something else I'm interested in. I think fact-checking is one of the – has caused big, important changes in how we cover the news now. And it's gotten, uh, especially the younger generation of reporters, much more interested in going beyond that he said, she said reporting. And that's why uh, there are fact-checking – uh, websites now all over the world. We've only been talking about the United States, but there's actually a global fact-checking movement that's been spawned that's rethinking journalism uh, all across the world. And I think providing some accountability to politicians who haven't always uh, had it. So uh, I see that as a, as a positive sign, even if we can't roll back every myth the way we might like. 
And for us science journalists, we say, well, finally, the rest of the media is catching up to what we've been doing forever. (laughs) I hope so. Although, you know, we we could have another podcast on the failings of of, of bad science journalism and and some of the studies that I see covered out there. That's right. Um, But yes, that's right. Uh, You know, the science journalism thing, though, is, is, is a nice way to underscore. We need more reporters who are like science journalists, the best science journalists, in having that deep knowledge that allows them to do the fact checking and consult with the experts in an informed way. If we have those those kinds of journalists, uh, they can do this kind of reporting. If people are bouncing from beat to beat and subject to subject, writing for the web every two hours, it's it's hard to do this kind of work. Well, listen, Brendan, it's great to talk to you, and um, you know, thank you for helping to try to make reality a little bit more uh, embraced. Thanks, Chris. Wow, so th- that was a much more optimistic conversation than I was fearing, Chris. Okay, good, uh, good. So, I mean, one of my big takeaways is that the uh, fact-checking, we can't always necessarily change somebody's mind just by showing them the facts, but we can influence the potential number of lies that will be coming out in the future by making a good show of fact-checking. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean... Uh, the fact that it's in the environment has to change the environment. I, I think that's a pretty strong argument. I think that on the national level, if you're like Mitt Romney in the 2012 campaign and you've been fa- you're fact checked every day, uh, it might be something where you can just brush off. On the other hand, if you're a local politician trying to win office for the first time and you have only one local newspaper and they say, you know, you've got, you know, this person just ran a dishonest ad, it could have huge consequences for you. So, so I think that that's. That's the nuance that comes out of this interview. And I love I love the idea of just sending a politician letters saying, we're watching you. <laughs> You're being fact-checked. I, I feel like we should start a campaign for just average people I, to I didn't just know constantly the, write in. Well, national politicians probably have an intern opening those letters, too. I mean, That's I think true. it's a question of scale. You know, I mean, I think with the local politicians, maybe they actually look at the letters, uh, or more likely to look at the letters. So Yeah, well, I've heard that you're more likely to get it looked at if you actually physically mail in a snail mail letter as opposed to email email. And the best way is just to go into their office, just right. march in right. and talk to them and just be like, I'm watching you. <laughs> I'm, I'm fact checking you. <laughs> it's a cool study. And and notably, I, I, uh, I'm writing this up. So I looked at the study. And one thing about it is that the vast majority of local politicians are never fact checked. So it's only a small, small percentage that get fact checked. And they're able to show an effect of receiving the letter versus not receiving the letter. So basically, the people who don't receive the letter have like a 3% chance of getting fact-checked and being dinged as wrong. And the people that, re- that receive the letter end up with a 1% chance. But it ends up being quite si- quite significant, even oh, though the, the total That's, risk is we're actually... We're back to the depressing. Yeah, well, <laughs> there are not enough fact-checkers out there. Well, yeah, I think what we really need is a culture change. Uh, and this was brought up during the interview as well, this idea that journalists are trying to provide both sides of the story instead of making one side of the story the truth, you know, uh, and and appropriately calling out politicians when they lie or when they misstate facts. Totally. Well, that's a hopeful note. And on that, let's let's wrap it up. That's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. I want to thank Rebecca for helping us out. Uh, you can thank find you, out, Chris. Yeah, totally. You can find out more about her at skeptic.org. And you can visit the Inquiring Minds website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find them on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send your comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to, uh, to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Today's episode of the show is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's top professors to your fingertips for limited time The Great Courses is offering our listeners 80% off the original price of one of these courses, which is entitled Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Professor Mark Leary. So to find out more, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm your guest host, Rebecca Watson. 
At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.